Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John, and today we're going to be looking at the idea of signs of the Messiah. And follow along as we read. Let's just read the entire chapter as we look at the John chapter 2. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother, his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said to them, this, he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that any, anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. As we think about the, the signs of the Messiah, I want to start off this morning with a little experiment, a little psychology experiment if you will. I want you to, to, in your mind, I want you to think about, look around where you're sitting and select a color. Uh, maybe other than blue, since the carpet's blue, but select a color. And look around and find five things that have that color in them. I don't see any of you looking around. You know. when you're, think about it, though. When you're looking for a specific color, isn't it amazing how often you find it? Or maybe you don't like that one. Go out and buy a new car. All right, let's take this down to another level. 
And, and you buy a new car, and isn't it, at least for me, isn't it amazing that all the cars of the same kind that you had just bought that are now on the road that you didn't notice up until the time you bought your car? You know, it all has to do with mindset. It all has to do with mind. We have a specific mindset. We tend to see what we're looking for. And that's exactly what's going to happen here in John chapter 2. As we look at the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see this happening among the people. And in John 2, John begins to present to us the signs, the, the miracles, if you will, that prove uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so as we continue to explore John's question, the very important question that we're asking throughout this study is this. Who is this Jesus? Remember, we began the, the first introductory message with that question. Who is this Jesus? John has presented him to us as the Lamb of God. John has said to us that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the very Son of God. And the question that would now arise in a lot of people's mind is this. How do we know that? How do we know that's true? Who is this Jesus? Well, John says he's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. How do I know that? Well, having introduced Jesus uh, to us uh, uh, or to the disciples in John chapter 1, John now gives us a glimpse of the proof upon which the disciples and we here today can rest our faith. You know, as John presents these miracles, he speaks to us of them as signs. And that is their specific purpose. Yes, they are miracles. Yes, he is doing miraculous things. But he is really presenting them to us as signs. They are signs that demonstrate to us exactly who Jesus is. Drop down to verse 11 for a moment. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. There he manifested his glory through the signs. You, know, you see, uh, Jesus is the incarnate word. He is the authoritative word of God. Back in John chapter 1, verse 14, John said, We beheld his glory. And so we see that the glory of the Messiah is seen in his miracles, in his signs. That is the display of the glory. He does things that are amazing. He does things that are miraculous. He does things that display to us, man, this is somebody that is totally different from anybody else. He displays his glory through these signs. And so in this chapter, we're going to see not only his glory on display, display but we're also going to see a manifestation of his authority. And so the, the two points of the message are very simple this morning. We're going to see a manifestation of his glory, and we're going to see a manifestation of his authority. All of the proofs of his messiahship, if you will, are here if we'll just open our eyes to see. And yet, in this chapter, at the very outset of his ministry, what we're going to discover is that men, people, are going to see only what they want to see. They're going to see only what they want to see. With all of the signs, with all of the miracles, with the demonstration of his glory, with the demonstration of his authority, 
men are going to, people are going to respond in different ways. And it all starts a lot of times with our mindset. This is what we are determined we're going to believe or not going to believe. And, and so let's kind of look into it, dig into it a little bit this morning. And, and hopefully if you've come with the wrong mindset, we can, we can help you to see that he is exactly who he claims to be. Let's look, first of all, at the manifestation of his glory in this first miracle, this first sign here in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the very first of his miracles. Uh, And uh, uh, we see that in verse 11, this beginning of signs. You know, there are a lot of traditions around that, that Jesus, as a little boy, did miracles, you know, and he, he did this or he did that or he did, did what. John seems to tell us that that wasn't the case. This is the beginning of the signs. This is the beginning of the miracles. And remember, Jesus doesn't just do miracles just to do miracles. They are to, to give evidence of the fact of who he is. They are to give us signs of who he is. And so the first, very first miracle takes place at a place called Cana in Galilee, and it's, it takes place at a wedding. And, and we read here that, that uh, in verse 1, the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not only there, but it seems that she has some relation to the people who are getting married or that part of the wedding policy party for, or whatever, because she seems to take a very personal interest in the fact that they've run out of wine. Uh, and and she, she wants something to happen here. Uh, it, it says in verse 3, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And again, it seems like she has some connection to the, to the wedding, to, to the marriage, to make her take such a personal interest in that. And Jesus and his disciples are there. They're in attendance at the wedding. wedding. And, and uh, think with me a little bit. Why would she say this to Jesus? Why would she say to her son, they have no wine? Well, reflect back on the Christmas story for just a moment. Remember in Luke chapter 2, as the shepherds come to visit the Lord Jesus Christ, and as they bow down and they worship him, and, and all of that has gone on that night. Remember in verse 19, there's a very important verse that says, Mary took all these things and she did what? She pondered them. She, she kept them in her heart, and she thought about them. And she, she ran about in her, her mind. All the things that have been told to her about her son. You know, uh, things that the angel told her before he was even born. You know, things that the shepherds said to her. Things that that the the magi would have said to her later on. Uh, She would have made note of all of those things. And then in Luke chapter 2, we see another story that's only related to us in Luke chapter 2. That when Jesus was 12 years old, remember that story, they went to the temple and uh, Jesus kind of hung back in the temple. They lost him for a couple days. Uh, some of you would like to do that with some of your kids, maybe lose him for a couple days. But, but they lost him. And they go back and remember, they, they, they kind of, where have you been? And remember what he said, I have to be about my father's business. And, and so Mary is putting all these things in her mind. And I think she comes to the conclusion that, that Mary seems to, to believe, knows that her son is unique. 
that there is that that you know what the angel said he he's going to be the Christ he's going to be the son of God and, and when this problem arises that they've run out of wine she was sure he could do something about the need and i know that verse 4 gives us a little bit of pause and, and be careful how you read it first of all uh, jesus said to her woman what does your concern have to do with me? And, you know, to, to, some, to some of us, that sounds a little, oh, a little strong maybe even. You know, we don't really talk to people that way today. This is a normal conversation in those days. Remember when Jesus is even on the, uh, on the cross, he says to, to John, uh, you know, this is now your mother. And he says to, to his mother, woman, this is now your son. So, so as we read this, don't, don't read it this way. Woman, what does that have to do with me? That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, he's the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all. And whatever he's saying is going to be respectful. But before he acts, however, he needs her to understand something. He needs her to understand. He needs her to know, even as he told her back in the temple when he was 12, that his agenda is now different than hers. He must be directed by God. He must be directed by the plan and purpose of the Father. His heavenly Father must now direct. And so he says to her in verse 4, before he does the miracle, he just says to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me, with, with my Father's agenda? My, my hour is not yet come. And, and he's saying, you know, my heavenly Father is now the, uh, the one that must direct. It's his timetable. It's not man's timetable that's going to determine what I do. I, I'm on God's timetable. I am on God's plan. I'm in God's purpose. And so God is going to direct. And God's glory is going to be manifested in God's time and in God's way. And, and I think that that's really all Jesus is doing here with, with his mother, just reminding her and even giving us the record of this, that he is on the God's timetable and, and his glory will be manifested in God's timetable and in God's way. And we notice that Mary in verse 5 submitted herself to this. She, she understood that, it seems, but she still expressed confidence that he would, meet to, he would act to meet this need. And she says in verse 5, you know what? Servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Look at verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone. And don't miss this. According to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. The water pots were there to provide for the ceremonial cleansing of the guests. Remember, you know, you, you come to the house and, and you, you, you wash your hands, you wash your feet, uh, whatever. It, it's the ceremonial cleansing. It's this Jewish ritual system. And John tells us that each one of those water pots would have held 20 or 30 gallons of water. And Jesus tells the servants to, to fill those water pots up with water. In obedience, we see that they did that in verse 7, and they filled them up to the brim. Remember that old commercial? Fill it to the rim with brim. You know, 
Uh, and, and so they, they fill that water pot up. And why did they go all the way to the top? Well, I don't know. But here, let me just add a, a little thing. You know, the, there's no magic going on here. It's not like when they got their backs turned, Jesus pours something in there. You know, they're, they're filled to the, the waters all the way up to the top. You know, and, and Jesus says, put in the water in. And then he tells them to, <clears throat> to pour out a glass for the master of the feast, the toastmaster, the, the person in charge of the feast. And when that man tastes the water uh, that has been turned into wine, uh, he, is, he is amazed. And he was astounded by the good quality of the wine. He says, this is, verses 9 to 10, this is far superior to anything that has been served before. Yeah, you know, when, when the feast started, you gave us, you know, Mountain Dew. And it, and it tasted really good. But now it's the flat Mountain Dew, which is really good. You know, yeah, the, the, now it's the good stuff. Man, you, you held back to the good stuff. Nobody does that. The master says, nobody serves the, you know, the, the, the better stuff later. No, they, they want to serve the good stuff first. But you've done this. Because he has no idea where this, where this came from. But, but the servants know. The servants know exactly what happened. You know, while this first miracle was certainly... Uh, one that manifested the glory of Christ. It manifests his creative power, his power over the natural world. I think it also has a spiritual message for us as well. I think it has a symbolic message, if you will. If we notice back in verse 6, we talk about the purification of the Jews. And these water pots were there for that purpose. And just kind of follow this through with me. That which represented the purifying of the Jews, these six water pots, uh, it has now been filled with new and superior wine, if you will. And I think that the idea here symbolically may be this. God wants the people to know that what is, a, is beginning to happen now is far superior and far better than the old Jewish religious system. This is something new. This is something far superior. And not only is his creative glory seen, but his transforming power is seen here as well. For this Christ can bring fullness out of emptiness. And that which he is going to bring forth is good. It is fruitful. It is far superior to what they've had before. I think the, the idea here, folks, is this. The Lord can take something that is empty. He can take the emptiness of my life and he can make it fruitful. He has the power to transform. What, what do we say? He has the power to convert. When we get saved, we sometimes say we were converted. He has the power to do that, to transform us, to convert us, to, to bring rich fullness out of our emptiness. This afternoon, go read Isaiah chapter 61, specifically verse 3. It talks about bringing fullness out of emptiness. 
and the emptiness of the of the Jewish religious system, the emptiness of Judaism is now filled with new wine. It's now filled with that which is going to bring real joy, true cleansing. Remember, what has the Jewish religious system become? It's become a system of rules and regulations. There's no joy there. We got to dutifully keep the rules. And the Pharisees are there to do what? Jump on anybody that gets out of line. That can't be joyful. That's not what God intended. And Jesus comes to bring something new. Jesus comes to bring true fulfillment. Jesus comes to bring real joy. And so while this first miracle certainly demonstrates his glory and is the first sign that shows he is the Messiah, I think this symbolic message is being presented as well. And Jesus will continually come back to this symbolic message throughout his entire earthly ministry. But look at verse 11. I think it's very important for us to note the effect of this miracle, this sign specifically on the disciples. It says this is the beginning of signs. He manifests his glory. But notice the last line of verse 11. And his disciples, what? Believed. Remember in John chapter 20, John says, I'm writing all these things down so that you might believe. So that you might believe. And here in John chapter 2, we see the disciples said, you know what? He is who he claims to be. We believe in him. The manifestation of his glory. Let's look at the second thing then. Let's look at the manifestation of his authority, which begins in verse 13 and takes us down through the end of the chapter. Here we see Jesus in the temple at Jerusalem at Passover time. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus is in the, the temple at the Passover and here he demonstrates his authority as the Son of God as he acts on behalf of the Father. Uh, when he finds the temple filled with things that don't belong there. Look at verse 14. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. He, he comes to the temple here at Passover. And as he enters into the temple area, there's all kinds of market stalls. There, there's animals in there. There's people changing, you know, selling things, buying and selling, selling things. And this is not what the temple was to be. This is not what his father's house was to be. And so he cast them out. Verse, verse 15, he makes a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the changers' money. He overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, I think what's going on here is this. The temple was the place where God met with his people. It was the point of contact between God and man. You went to the temple to worship God. You went to the temple to meet with God. And yet what we see is that man has turned that place of meeting God 
into a common marketplace. It was, a, it was a place now where I can come and I can buy an animal. I can sell an animal. You know, I don't have to think about it. I, I don't, I'm not really worried about meeting God. I'm, I'm here doing business. Jesus said, no. And he acts decisively with authority. And that authority comes from the fact that he's the son of God. This is his father's house. That gives him the right to cast these people out. He acts with authority. He acts with, uh, you know, decisiveness. And look at verse 16. He, he does so, he says, because this is my father's house. He speaks of the temple as his father's house. He's the son of God. He has the right to correct what is wrong in his father's house. Much like in verse 11, where that first sign, that first miracle caused the disciples to believe, this incident has an impact on the disciples as well. As they remember what is written in Psalm 69, verse 9, that a zeal for the temple, a zeal for the house of God has eaten me up. And the disciples, that, that verse comes to the, their mind as they think about what Jesus has just done. Well, the Pharisees weren't as impressed. You know, while the disciples see it as another sign, uh, the Jewish leaders question and challenge him as to his authority. And look at verse 18. They come to him and they say, what sign do you show us, show to us, since you do these things? And the idea here is, you know, what sign are you going to prove, are you going to give us to prove that you have the right to do what you just did? You came into our temple and you, you, you upset everything. You threw the, 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 the doves out, you threw the animals out, you threw the money changers out, and you said, don't mess with my father's house. What right do you have to do to say that? Prove to us. Show us a sign. Demonstrate something to us. Well, Jesus said, okay, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, let's not be too hard on those guys. You know, if someone came in here today and said, destroy this church, and in three days I'll rebuild it, I'll raise it up, we'd all think what? You're crazy. You know? You're nuts. And, and, and again, it gets back to mindset. They didn't understand this. And, and they say, wait a minute, it took 46 years, verse 20, to build this temple, and you're going to do it in three days? John says, oh, no, Jesus was not talking about that old temple building. He's talking about this new temple. He's talking about his body because all the fullness of God dwells in him. You know, that's what the temple was all about. The fullness of the glory of God. And, and all of that dwelled in the body of Christ. He was God incarnate. He's not talking about the old temple building. He's, he's giving them a, an, a picture of his resurrection, of his death and his resurrection. 
You see, from the very outset of his ministry, he speaks of his death and his resurrection because that's the very heart and soul of his mission. It's why he came. And so when they ask for a sign to prove his authority, he gives the greatest sign that he can give them. He gives the one sign that is above all the rest. You see, folks, it's the very fact of his resurrection. The fact that he rose from the dead proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is who he claimed to be and that all that he did was under God's authority. And in verse 22... It says, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, after that occurred, his disciples what? Ah, remembered. That means that they might not have understood this point at this point, uh, what he's talking about at this point in time. But after he raises, rises from the dead, the disciples remember this. And they remember what he said. After he had risen from the dead. You see, this one sign caps everything else. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God. I remember at my ordination, someone asking a question. And by the way, at ordination, questions get asked, and you're up here thinking, okay, what do they want? You know, what are they trying to get at? And someone said, what was the greatest day in history? Well, how would you answer that question? And I think I said uh, when Christ died on the cross for our sins. Now, you remember, you're under a lot of pressure at that point in time. But the reality is the greatest day is the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, the crucifixion means nothing. The crucifixion means nothing. Christ died on the cross for our sins, absolutely. Absolutely. But when he rose from the dead, Scripture tells us that that proved that he was the Son of God. That proved that God had accepted his sacrifice. That our sins were covered. He gained, what do we say? He gained victory over sin and death and hell. You see, the, the resurrection is the greatest sign. The, the resurrection is the one sign that caps all the other signs. The resurrection is the one that proves he's the son of God. Look at verse 23. In verse 23, it says that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in him when they saw the signs which he did. So there were other miracles. John doesn't record them for us, but there are other signs there as Jesus manifests there at the Passover both his glory and his authority. But as we close this morning, I, I want us to look at the last three verses in, in a, maybe a, a different way. I want us to think of three responses to the signs. Three responses of these people and of us to the miracles that Jesus did, to the signs, to the proof that he was the Messiah. And in this chapter, I think we find those who, first of all, who believe. Uh, you know, in this chapter, we see three different responses to these signs. People saw in these miracles what they wanted to see. The proof was there. 
But not everyone was able to see it because they came in with preconceived ideas or preconceived notions. That still happens today. Uh, let me take you back to the Fiesta Bowl, the Ohio State game. You know, that was a fumble in that game. Everybody in the world knows there was a fumble. That, can I have an amen on that? Thank you. And yet the referees looked at it even on replay and they had came back and even though the proof was there, in my mind, you know, you see how we come in with a mindset. And, and so here are these signs that prove Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. What are the three responses? First of all, the, the first response is there were those who believed. There, there were those who saw his glory and believed. Verse 11, the disciples saw his glory and believed. Verse 22, the disciples remembered what he said, and they believed. You know, what they saw only confirmed both what both John the Baptist had said in chapter 1 and what Jesus had said. Here's the Lamb of God. Here's the Messiah. Here's the Christ. This is the Lord. We see the sign. We believe. And I know that many of you sit here this morning and you believe. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You believe he's the Son of God. You believe he's the Savior of the world. Look at verse 18. Here's the second group. The second group is those who stumbled over his authority. The religious leaders and the Jews answered and said to him, remember last week I told you the Jews usually refers to those religious leaders who are hostile to Jesus. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? You see, while the disciples are remembering the scriptures, wow, the zeal of the Lord, the house of the Lord is eating him up, the, the religious leaders are questioning his authority. Now, now to just stop for a moment. Do those religious leaders know the same scriptures that the disciples are remembering? Probably even better than the disciples did. And yet they're not thinking about that scripture. They're not thinking about that at all. They're questioning his authority. They're challenging it. Prove yourself. And all through his ministry, that mindset prevails. And in spite of the many signs that he did, even when he gives them the greatest sign, his resurrection from the dead, their hearts are still set against him in spite of the evidence. You know, in John chapter 11, we're going we're gonna to read about that wonderful, amazing sign when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Remember that? And if you were there that day, wouldn't you believe? You, you would like to think you would. But the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Not only kill him, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. That never made sense to me. But then when he himself rose from the dead in the greatest miracle of all, the religious leaders concoct a story. Ah, oh, the disciples stole his body. Oh, he didn't raise from the dead. You know, he said he was going to do that, but we don't believe that that happened. And there might be some of you here today that that's where you're at. You've heard the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. You've heard the truth that he came down to this earth and he died on the cross for your sins. You've heard the truth that he's the Savior, he, he is the, the Messiah, and you say, I don't believe that. 
I don't believe that. Let's look at the third. The third response is there were those who were swayed by his miracles. And I think that John wants us to see the difference between those who are attracted and those who are swayed by the miracles and those who truly believe. I think this is a third group here. It says in verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But notice Jesus' response. Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The, the signs of Jesus convinced many people that he was unique, and that produced some level of belief on their part. But Jesus doesn't seem to be taken in by this. He knew their hearts, and so he's not going to commit himself to these people. Why? Because a faith, listen to me carefully, a faith that is built upon miracles and signs is a shallow faith. A shallow faith that, that is not really genuine. A shallow faith that says, I will only believe because I see or what I see. And it is not trust and it is not confidence in the person and in his word. It is not trust and confidence in Jesus and his word. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. True faith rests in the word of God. When Jesus speaks to Thomas in John chapter 20, he, and you remember Thomas was the one who doubted. And, and then Jesus shows himself to Thomas. And Thomas says, oh, I believe. And Jesus said, faith uh, puts a premium on faith that is not dependent on sight. If we only believe because of what we see, is that genuine faith? You know, I think about a lot of people who make deals with God. God, if you do this, I'll believe. Lord, if you do that, I'll believe. Lord, if you take care of this problem, I'll believe. That's not true belief. You see, the, the sign confirmed the faith of the true believers... Those who were swayed only by signs are often then swayed by something else. And so it was with a lot of the Jews. As we work our way through the Gospel of John, we're going to see that many who followed him all of a sudden stopped following him. Because they didn't truly believe. See, the Lord knows what's in our hearts, folks. Do we truly believe? Do we rest our faith upon what he has said because he is trustworthy? Or are we only swayed by what we see? And then there is that third response. There are those who just question it all and don't believe anything. My question to you today, what, what group are you in? You know, what, what group are you in here this morning? Are you, are you part of the group that believes? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, understanding that you are a sinner on your way to hell, and the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ our Lord? Or are you kind of half swayed by that? 
Lord, what do you, you know, if God does this for me, then I'll believe. If God does that for me, then I'll believe. I'm kind of here, but I, I really, you know, and we're kind of vacillating back and forth. Or are you here this morning and say, I don't believe? I don't believe. That's certainly a choice. May I just caution you? It's a pretty bad choice, it's an eternal choice. It's a choice that's going to end up with you spending eternity in hell. And again, I, I say this to you all the time. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's a chance you're going to take, I guess. God says in his word, this is truth. Are we going to take God at his word or are we going to take what, what I believe? You know, that's, that's our choice. We trust God. We take him at what he says is true. We take him that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we put our faith and trust in that, or we believe something else. We believe someone else. Which do you believe today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the truth of your word. Thank you for the sign, the miracles that demonstrated to the disciples and to the people that day and even to us as we read that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. And Lord, I know that as we close our service, most of the folks here this morning believe that. That's why we're here. We're here to worship you. But Lord, I also believe there are some here that do not believe that. At this point in their life, they have not chosen to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon them this morning how important it is to make that decision. That today, they would believe. They would put their faith and trust in Christ, knowing that eternity is at stake here. Who is this Jesus? He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on our church, located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.